0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Jeffrey Kane, news and features editor of Barron's. Thank you all for joining us today to learn more about investing in healthcare. My guest today is, of course, Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Kazis, who has been following the latest news in COVID vaccines and treatments, healthcare policy, biotechs. Uh, pharmaceuticals, <laughs> uh, all, 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 all you can think of of, health, to, of interest to in healthcare investors. Um, hello, Josh. How are you? Great. How are you? Good to talk to you. Good. Yeah. No, it's it's good. Um, this week, of course, all the news has been about the uh, horrible war in Ukraine. Uh, but it's a good place to start. Is that amid all that, uh, we are still living in a uh, pandemic. Um, maybe not as ferocious as it seemed to be a few weeks ago but but still uh very much part of our lives uh josh maybe you could start and just tell us where 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 things stand with uh in the united states right now
1: yeah no i think i think that's a good good summary look i mean as uh, cases are still pointing down right the number of cases are 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 getting lower and lower uh, every day right now the u.s is averaging about fifty-five thousand new cases of covid-19 each day that's down 56% over the last 2 weeks and that's good and that's that's the right direction obviously you know one thing that's worth remembering is that you know while 50,000 55,000 new cases is the lowest since July actually which which is pretty remarkable you know we can still remember that like for example last June it was it was as low as 11,000 new cases per day so you know we are we are certainly in a much different place than we were 2 weeks ago a much different place than we were during the Delta surge. Um, But, uh, you know, it's still it's still see significantly more new cases per day in the US than, for example, during the the lulls we can remember from this past summer. Um, You know, more importantly, the new cases, hospitalizations are down um, 43%. It's about uh, 46,000 hospitalizations and deaths are down 21%, averaging around um, 1800 per day. That's still one of the highest numbers of the entire pandemic. Um, which is important to keep in mind as we are, you know, more and more talking about our uh, what uh, the sort of easing of the pandemic. Um, but of course, you know, deaths are, as we've said many times, a trailing indicator and uh, you know, reflect what the new case count was like, you know, four or five weeks ago,
0: right? So, and, and so, four or five weeks ago, we were sort of in the uh, uh, uh feeling the brunt of the omicron wave um you uh have recently written about uh, some variant of omicron is is there is that something of concern or does there, is there remain to be seen how how um uh what kind of effect that will have
1: yeah so I, what you're referring to is what's what's known as BA2 basically omicron is a is a variant but they've no. Uh, describe these sub sub lineages and the one that um swept through the us was um sort of a family of uh, omicron that's now designated ba1 ba2 is dominant in certain other countries you know my, my rule of thumb as i said before with with variants and subvariants and so on and so forth is that you don't really worry until the who says to worry and, and this is something that actually the who has flagged um A couple of weeks ago now uh talking about how it was rising quickly they didn't really know what it would mean um you know in certain parts of the world it's become more ba2 has become um, more dominant than ba1 potentially out competing it i don't think we know yet uh what this means for you know places like the u.s for example which have already had a very serious uh, wave of, of, of ba1 um you know, I, I I think this is something that health officials are still watching, and no one's saying it's uh um gonna create a new surge. For example, H- however, it's just a reminder. I think uh, as as everyone keeps reminding us that the pandemic is not over, and that there could be a new variant or a new surge at some point. Um, and and making predictions uh, along these lines are, are challenging, and if not, you know, unwise.
0: Right, right, and and it it doesn't seem to change the overall picture of um. Slowing growth of new cases and uh, a decline in uh, both hospitalizations and deaths, as you previously mentioned. So yeah, yeah, right now, yeah, that's in, sort of like, in the U.S. right now, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so that 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 um, uh, somewhat more upbeat uh, outlook on the course of the pandemic comes as a number of uh, states and municipalities have lifted their restrictions, and perhaps which what's most notable this week was. Uh, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, as part of his State of the Union address on Tuesday evening, you know, talked about um, uh, at some length to talk about uh, the country uh, getting back to, uh, you know, some version, some version of normal. What, what did what was your takeaway from his comments and what does that mean as far as how uh, the government and, and governments will be dealing with the uh, pandemic?
1: Yeah, this is something that's been building and, and on its way for a couple of weeks. We wrote what well, must have been two or three weeks now ago at this point about um, how a number of sort of the most prominent uh, public health experts in the U.S. on um, on COVID had begun to push for a very rapid easing of restrictions as Omicron waned, and we're seeing that now. And you know, um, you know, before Biden's speech on Tuesday, on Friday, last Friday, the CDC made a pretty dramatic change in terms of its uh, masking guidelines. They had previously essentially said that indoor, that re- recommended indoor masking for basically the whole country. Um, they updated their guidelines based on a new way of thinking about high risk versus lowest risk areas mm-hmm. that takes into account hospitalizations and not just case counts and um, a sort of different set of metrics, essentially. Uh, and now, you know, indoor masking is only recommended in about half of the U S uh, and it's likely to um, be recommended in, in less and less of the U.S. as Omicron continues to wane. And they've also changed their guidance on masking in schools, which has been a really controversial issue. So Biden's um, uh, comments on Tuesday, I think, you know, served as as an acknowledgement of what's been happening um, over the, the last two, three weeks of state after state lifting uh, mask mandates. I believe right now the only state that has a indoor mask mandate and, and does not have any announced plans to lift it is Hawaii um, most if not all states that had uh, you know uh, indoor, I'm sorry school massing requirements have, have lifted, lifted lifted them. That doesn't mean that every you know local school district is going to follow suit immediately. Um, but there's certainly been a sea change in how people are thinking about where we are and what what Biden was doing was you know continuing to push that. He, he specifically and explicitly made a call for people to return to their offices um and announced some new programs to try to facilitate all this the the most important i think potentially impactful one is something they've called test to treat which is intended to ease access and distribution to the um the antivirals that are that are now available available to treat people with covid particularly the pfizer antiviral this is a program where you'll be able to go to certain pharmacies um get tested and if you're positive get given your you know pfizer prescription for free um at, at that moment, you know, there have been a lot of anecdotal stories about how hard it is to actually get your hands on Pfizer's um, pill, you know, supplies initially were limited, um, they're seem to be ramping up now. And hopefully this will make it easier for people, um, you know, to get that treatment, which at least in, you know, the clinical trials look quite effective in in certain populations. Um, the, they're, they're also uh, Biden announced some at home tests. And I should say, you know, it wasn't just the State of the Union the following day, uh, yesterday. Um, that's Wednesday. Um, uh, the, the White House um, uh, COVID advisors, as well as the, the CDC head and, and the head of the uh, uh, Secretary of the Health and Human Services all got together and, and, and laid out, uh, presented a new sort of uh, roadmap, essentially, to deal with COVID at, at, at this moment in the pandemic. And it, it, it described at it greater length a number of the things that the president discussed the previous night, but basically it's, it's, you know, it's a call to return to normal, um, with the caveat that, you know, there's plenty of, you know, um, uh, uh cautions in place and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were clear to say there could be a new variant at some point. Um, but right now it's time to,
0: you know, get back to work. <laughs> yeah. And another big emphasis here, uh, this past week and, um, previously was the, uh, uh, devoting resources to get, um, uh, to, to allow Americans to, to test themselves, um, to get testing kits out there. What's, what's, uh, you know, what's, what is the status of that? That was announced, uh, um, oh gee, well, like beginning of the year. And yeah, uh, I believe that was, yeah. That, that, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, so, you know, people have been able to order them these, these at home rapid test kits mm-hmm. for a number of months. Now the president said at the beginning uh in in a number of days people can order additional kits um you know i think that the i mean t- to me that that program has um the, 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 there were sort of some odd things about that program from the start right the people who uh ordered the kits were all getting the same number of kits regardless of how many people were mm-hmm. in their household um and could only get four for for a household regardless of how many people live in the household. that's not so- changing right uh, well, you can, you can order more, but as far as I understand it, you can't, uh, order more based on the number of people who live in your house. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, a, it's certainly a, that always seemed, I mean, it just doesn't seem like, uh, enough kits that people are really going to be using them in a aggressive way to try to limit, you know, exposures that said, you know, in this, it, it may be that usages of the kits, this will be different now that there's less COVID out there people won't be using it um you know every time they have a tickle in their throats i don't i don't really know um but th- anyway but but that is another piece of the plan and they've, they've certainly talked about um increasing uh testing capacity
0: right and you know this morning you we published an article by you that's uh uh focuses on one of the makers of these uh test kits and it's it's interesting yeah this is fascinating or, sorry no yeah, go no go ahead go it's <laughs> <on.
1: laughs> a fascinating story look when, when, yeah. when they first announced this we spoke uh, one of the questions I had was where they were going to get all these kits. I mean, we, we knew from, I mean, I knew from my personal experience trying to buy tests, um, you know, on Walmart's website that they were, the supplies were not, not large. And, and the companies that were making the tests that had been widely available, uh, had limited output. And what they'd ended up doing was contracting with a company called iHealth Labs, um, that had a relatively small footprint in the U S and, um, neither I nor many other people knew what it was. And as we've written about, it's, it's the U.S. subsidiary of a not particularly large Chinese manufacturing firm called Andin. Um, and, uh, and Andin is a company that specializes in sort of consumer electronic medical devices. They make blood pressure monitors glucose monitors they made a huge number of um forehead tests uh i'm sorry uh, forehead thermometers at the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic um but they're not a major diagnostic test maker um but they do seem to have the capacity to make hundreds of millions of these tests um at a rate far higher than the u.s test makers like Abbott um
0: and, and others. And you you, uh, you explain some of the possible reasons why the this company as opposed to some more established companies was able to ramp up so quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, as we say, and we don't, we don't really know, you know, they didn't answer our questions about whether they were subcontracting, for example, They're, they would be allowed to do that uh, mm-hmm. under the terms of the UA. Um, but, it, you know, as, as some people we spoke to said, it's sort of a testament to the power of Chinese manufacturing. Um, and, you know, the, the, the ways in which, you know, the manufacturing sector is structured there, it relies less on some of the supply chain, um, the sort of fancy supply chains that that have made made manufacturing challenging in the, in the U.S. Uh, in recent uh, during during the pandemic. So, um, you know, I think it would be fascinating to to know exactly like which factories were making these tests and whether they really were being made all at end of factories or, or not. Um, but it, it's it's just sort of a remarkable. Um, remarkable thing that this company has been able to do to ramp up. I mean, to switch from making, you know, a huge volumes of forehead thermometers to unbelievable volumes of rapid tests over uh, the course of a year is, is sort of a fascinating um, feat of logistics. And, uh, and um, so it's interesting to take a look at.
0: Yes, certainly. And, and and tell us how many uh, test kits are they making for the U.S. The contract
1: is for $1.8 billion uh, for it's a, just about 350 million kits. But, but by contrast, we know that Abbott and Roche together have a contract for, I believe it's 120 million kits. So, you know, um, it's uh, Abbott is one of the biggest other companies in the U.S. Um, and is a company whose, you know, 2020 revenues were something like some fraction of the value of, of this contract.
0: You know, and in a, in a uh, sort of fascinating irony that you mentioned in your in your article, um, China, of course, has a different take on how it tests its citizens. Do you, you want to explain that?
1: Uh, yeah, that I'm actually I'm not sure that's in the, <laughs> the final, but 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 yes, it is. So you know, China, as you know, has had this um, sort of zero COVID policy that's that's distinguished it from much of the rest of the world, and it's meant. A huge reliance on testing. But interestingly, people we spoke with said that the testing they're doing in that country is the lab-based PCR tests. Um, They're they're not really relying on these at-home rapid tests. Um, And that's because, you know, when you're testing a whole population, uh, you want, the government wants the results of these tests. Uh, The at-home tests, you're relying on the the individual who takes the test to report the results. So what we were told is that the you know, the market for at home rapid tests in China is not substantial, you know, the huge, you know, volumes of testing entire cities multiple times when you just see, you know, just for a handful of cases, that's all happening with um, with the PCR tests in the labs. Um, so, you know, super interesting to, to, to think about how they've developed these tests, but it's and, and are producing them at a massive scale, but it's mostly for an export market.
0: Yes, export. And, and uh, I probably should just mention as an aside, the, the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this week that China may be rethinking its uh, zero tolerance policy, uh, perhaps a, a subject for another uh, uh, episode of this podcast. Uh, so to segue uh, to another uh, dimension of the pandemic, one of the, the big stars, of course, uh, has been, uh, we mentioned Pfizer, but the other one, Moderna, and its COVID vaccine vaccine um it's stock rocketed uh after uh it got authorization for the vaccine uh it's lately fallen back uh recently we've had some news last week moderna reported earnings that exceeded expectations and announced a buyback um so we, where 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 is this company at how should we th- be thinking about moderna
1: so look, like, I mean as as you say, Moderna rocketed up, but it's down forty three percent this year. This is a company, and we, we had a big feature on this. It must have been a month ago now. Um, that that's uh, now in this interesting position where they're going to be, you know, transitioning transitioning with the rest of us to a post pandemic or at least post acute phase of the pandemic. Um, uh, uh, you know, market situation. Mm. You know, before the pandemic, as as we've said here before, uh, Moderna, you know, had no products, and there were Three or four companies that dominated the vaccine market, at least from a revenue perspective, and that's you know Sanofi, Glaxo, and Merck and Pfizer. Although you know Merck in particular, that's really on the strength of a single or a smaller handful of vaccines. Um, anyway, I you know, and these 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 four giants are established vaccine makers uh, with you know huge um, uh, huge huge amount of experience, relationships and also, um, you know, just people on the ground in countries all over the world. Um, And Sanofi in particular has made the argument this in a sort of more normalized non-pandemic environment is gonna be an an advantage for the incumbent players and a real challenge for Moderna. And Moderna has been pushing back at that, obviously. Um, And they say, you know, they have a lot of money to spend to do this. Um, And they, they proved that their technology works they have this vaccine. They have relationships now because they were delivering vaccine, right?
0: Um, right. So, so you that, know they, that is just mentioned is our 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 first question from from Mike asking if this very point is is where the the uh, the proof of comp concept for mRNA as a as a platform where that could be a springboard. Do you know is is the company are, are there drugs in the works for um, that are not COVID related?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, Moderna has a a big, big pipeline, you know, much of it is pretty early stage. Um, but they've got vaccines for all sorts of things, you know, flu, um, RSV, uh, they just announced new programs in, in herpes and in shingles. Um, and that's aside from uh, the cancer stuff that uh, cancer stuff from various cancer therapeutics they're working on, you know, before COVID, they're still working on those you know, they're the case that the Moderna makes and that Moderna bulls make is that like, you know, once you you prove that the technology works, it means it will work in more things. You know, I think they they've said like we always knew that we would either have zero drugs or like a hundred drugs. You know, once you've proven out the platform, um, now uh, we could all say, well, maybe maybe not. You know, getting a approval or authorization during a pandemic is different than getting approval in normal times. You know, it's, it's not a slam dunk, but that's certainly the case for the company. Now, in addition to what you mentioned uh, at their, the, they announced earnings last week, they also announced a $3 billion buyback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know, we, I spoke to the CEO, uh, Stefan Benzel, we talked about why, and, you know, basically they, they have more money than they can spend. And the problem they have is that they, that the early stage trials in which most of their drugs are in now don't costs that much when you have, you know, $17 billion, whatever the amount is, uh, late stage trials are expensive, but they don't have enough drugs in late stage, in late stage development to, to, to have to spend a lot of money on those, you know, they, they, they have increased their footprint. They've opened offices in a number of countries, but that they say is not that expensive and they don't want to, um, do it more quickly than is, is prudent. and obviously, as we've said, the stock is down, and, and you know I'm sure they were and you know, they were looking to to boost the uh, stock and undilute the um, undilute the investors. Um, so,
0: is, is, is messenger RNA um, technology does that make it uh, can that make it cheaper to develop drugs?
1: Well, well, that's sort of the theory, right? That you yeah. know, at least with the vaccines, what you're do Well, with the, with any of these drugs, you're sort of like you have the lipid nanoparticle which is the the wrapper and then you sort of drop in a new you know piece of mRNA um, which will code for the particular antigen you want so you're just kind of like plugging these things in um, so yeah I mean obviously you still have to test them um, but you know the stories about how quickly Moderna was able to get um, you know experimental vaccine ready design the COVID-19 vaccine it was basically a number of hours right because you're just getting you're selecting the antigen and you're and you're plugging it into the the lnp very designed so theoretically it can work very quickly but obviously you know and when we talk about how moderna could pretend and moderna and pfizer have said they could potentially you know get a new vaccine um designed and ready for uh to 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 protect against a new variant if if that were needed in a you know number of months that's um assuming you, you can really just plug into what you already have so yeah that's kind of the promise of mrna
0: so, so will the will the big test for Moderna be? And I know it's hard to speculate now because, as you say, the, the drugs are all in their early stages. But will it be that second drug that does come to market? What whatever it is. Yeah. Well, look. So
1: the the one that, that Moderna is really pushing now, they, they have this 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 um, idea of a sort of pan respiratory virus vaccine, where maybe that's not the best way to frame it. Basically, a combo vaccine you would get. Mm-hmm. There would be a booster on uh, a flu booster and a COVID booster, and they would add to it too. They could eventually protect against uh, other respiratory viruses as well. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. The flu booster initial data was mixed; investors didn't like it so much. Um, Moderna is still very bullish on this, um, but that's I think going to be a big test, uh, even beyond you know a fourth dose that may or may not happen this fall you know, moving towards that combo vaccine is is, is the sort of next benchmark for Moderna's yeah. Moderna story. But
0: there are, its competitors are, are developing their own.
1: Exactly, company. yeah. There's there's a number of companies working on MRNA-based flu vaccines, um, including Pfizer um, and Sanofi. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a test to see whether, uh, you know, Moderna is going to be going up against, as we've said, some of the biggest, biggest, uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world with much larger footprints and much longer track records, um, and uh, it will be sort of fighting it out in a commercial fight. In, in another context, you know, I'd, I'd asked Bencel about uh, new data from um, Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline Klein about a protein-based COVID vaccine um, that uh, that they're going to be pushing. And um, where, where, track- does,
0: where, does, where does that stand?
1: Yeah, sorry. So uh, so th- this, is, this is this is an interesting story. You know, um, in the beginning of COVID, we did a big cover story about the COVID vaccine race. And we had argued that the Sanofi Glaxo vaccine was going to be the first one, um, or at least like the sort of the best, the, <laughs> the best vaccine. It mm-hmm. was the one that seemed to be the most promising because at that point, you know, Sanofi and Glaxo were developing a, m- a much more traditional vaccine. Um, that worked using the same platform as an approved flu vaccine Um, and you know AstraZeneca Pfizer Moderna Johnson and Johnson were all pursuing these much more risky cutting-edge technologies Um, luckily they all worked one degree or another but there there was no guarantee and it seemed more likely that the Sanofi Glaxo one uh, would work in fact what happened was that everybody else's worked well enough and Sanofi and Glaxo's by the time they had data, uh, initial data, it it really wasn't wasn't good enough. Um, they went back to the drawing board, and they've now, um, you know, two years later, do seem to have something that they are now taking to regulators. Um, and they're, you know, they, they they have data on it as a primary boost, um, but they're really going to be pushing it for that booster market. It seems like, and it has some potential advantages. You know, it's more traditional, so people who are maybe concerned. About messenger RNA um, might be more comfortable. Also, I, I believe it doesn't have any of the storage issues. Um, that would be another benefit for it. And it, you know, it um, it's just generally sort of a more established platform, arguably. Although, of course, what like a billion people have gotten <laughs> mRNA vaccines at this point, so maybe
0: right. And, uh, and I guess I guess we should. That's a, that's a way to circle back to your your opening remarks in the sense that um, uh, COVID's going to be around for a while, and there will be a market for. Uh, vaccines or boosters uh, for some years to come.
1: Yeah. And I think for investors, the question is whether you have confidence, you know, Moderna's performance so far mm-hmm. gives you confidence that they're going to be um, able to 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 rise the commercial challenge um, of facing off in a non-pandemic environment against all these much more established players. Uh, or if you think, you know, the sort of um, institutional power of Sanofi and Pfizer and then the others can um, gives them too much of an advantage for Moderna to overcome.
0: Yeah, a very, very good question. We'll have to watch that one. Uh, so we have a couple other things we want to cover with the time we have left. One is um, a story that has been uh, uh, going on for quite some time now and, and, and uh, uh, is one of you know great uh, societal costs, but that is the opioid crisis. And uh, this week, Johnson & Johnson, some other companies um, finalized a uh, $26 billion settlement um, so what's it, does that, is that sort of the end of the litigation and what does it mean for, for, for Johnson and Johnson?
1: Yeah. And th- this is a fascinating story that's been going on for years. Um, you know, the, the, this development comes at a time when the opioid crisis is at its worst point ever. I mean, um, the, the number of opioid deaths during the pandemic were, um, even worse than, 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 than previous years. What's happened here is that um, you may, listeners may recall that in June, Johnson & Johnson and the three big drug distributors, um, that's McKesson, Cardinal, and, and uh, Maris Bergen, had announced this $26 billion settlement. And the idea of the settlement was that it was going to be a sort of so-called universal settlement where it would settle kind of substantially all of the claims against them. And that's claims both from states and from local governments, which had hired private attorneys um, to to sue these companies on their behalf. And there were thousands literally thousands of lawsuits Uh, it was we we talked about it in a cover story before the pandemic is potentially the most complicated um set of litigation in American history um so the the settlement was announced but it wasn't final because not enough people or not enough um plaintiffs had signed on to it and uh this past or last week I guess uh the companies said that they now believed that enough plaintiffs had signed up onto these settlements such that um, they could agree to them and be you know um uh, and feel as though they were substantially settling all the claims against them um so you know from an investor perspective for these companies the it, it lifts you know an overhang particularly against the drug mm-hmm. distributors um which which have been you know suppressing shares of those stocks for a number of years because it kind of caps the payout i mean the the, the payout's huge right it's um, in the range of six billion dollars for each of the dist- drug distributors uh, over 18 years, um, but uh, it for for investors they now know how big the payout is going to be. And the same thing for Johnson and Johnson, it um, it's they're paying five billion dollars, and, and again it sort of caps their opioid liabilities at least to, to some degree. And mm-hmm. and you know the, so the, the vast majority of that money, 85 percent, is going to state and local governments, uh, and it's t- meant to be I think earmarked for opioid. Um, uh, you know, to, 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 address the effects of the opioid um, epidemic and the rest is going to attorney's fees.
0: And Johnson & Johnson, of course, is an interesting stock story for, for several reasons, new CEO, newish CEO, um, you know, the split coming up, uh, certainly one worth watching.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, I guess we, we can mention that Johnson & Johnson is a company that faces lots of, uh, class action litigation and, and litigation from, um, uh, personal injury i mean all sorts of uh, anyway but this is sort of one of one one set of litigation that appears to be lifting um
0: for the well, one one less cloud over the company
1: yeah, exactly yeah, yeah.
0: um which is about out of time but i want to see if we can say something about another uh, listeners question uh rich is interested in gilead sciences um uh, <clears throat> it, uh it's sort of asking like what. Is there any prospect for uh, uh, a catalyst for, for, for that stock?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, yeah. I have not looked at Gilead in the last uh, couple of weeks, so I'd, I'd loath to say something um, without having thought about this too much. I, I will say the stock's down uh, 15% so far this year. Um, doesn't put it out of step with its peers, more or less. But, um, uh, you know, it's a good question, something we should look into uh, in the near future.
0: Yeah, they have some interesting products as well Uh, certainly maybe a subject for another for the next podcast
1: well yeah and you know people will remember that they had the first uh therapeutic remdesivir which you know i think um yeah it's it's efficacy was questionable but it was at the time kind of the the only hope for a lot of people
0: yeah yeah indeed it got it was uh got a lot of publicity for that so uh more more to more to come um all right, then. Well, uh, this is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Josh, and, and thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. Please join us tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch financial crime reporter Lucas Alpert will discuss corruption and the latest developments in the world of fraud with Ted Discan, who is the former head of the Public Corruption Unit for the U.S. Attorney's Office. for the Southern District of New York, otherwise known as the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. Uh, That sounds fascinating. Um, Look forward to that. So thank you, everyone. Uh, Be safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.